Amen, Lord. That is so true that you gave everything, Lord, that it's, it's nothing to do with us and it's everything to do with you. Your love and your grace, your infinite mercy. We pray, Lord, now as we go to your word, Lord, minister to every single heart that's here. I pray especially, Lord, for those who maybe be here that haven't been into church in a while, maybe been away from you, Lord, and I thank you that they're here this morning. I pray they'd feel welcomed and loved. Lord, I pray you'd minister especially to their hearts. I pray for every person that's here, Lord. Just touch us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Conform us more to your image. Make us into the men and women of God you want us to be. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll be happy to loan you one. And if you would like to take that Bible home, you can absolutely do that. Consider it our gift to you. So again, just raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, it means you need one. We study the Bible here, so it's good if you have one, okay? Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? Amen? Okay, all right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 2. Some of you may have thought that I was going to teach a, a message specifically on the resurrection, and certainly we're going to touch on that this morning. But if you're new to Calvary Chapel, what we do here is we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book, right through the Bible. We started in Matthew chapter 1, and we just go through every chapter. We're up to Romans on Wednesday nights. I encourage you to pray about coming out. We've, we've taught Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now we're in Numbers chapter 20. And I'll tell you, the Old Testament is awesome pictures of Christ. Amen? Red heifer. Num- Numbers 19. Phenomenal. Now this morning, I want, what I want to talk to you about is that each year at Easter, each year at Resurrection Sunday, we talk about the fact that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. We talk about His betrayal, His arrest, His trial, His scourging, His death, His burial. We talk about His, again, the, the victorious resurrection on Sunday morning. But you know, one of the things I want to make sure we all understand this morning is that we understand not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but why it is He had to die. You know, I had a lot of people that know I'm a pastor out of my kids' little league field will come up to me after seeing the movie The Passion, and they would say to me, you know, I know you're a pastor, why why did Jesus have to go through that? And there's a lot of people that understand at least the concept of the cross and the resurrection itself, but what we really must understand is why did he have to go to the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? And why is his resurrection so important to you and I? Now, as we continue our our study through Romans, we're going to see that again, that Jesus is God, that He's fully in control, as we saw through the Gospels. We saw that that nobody arrested Him and nobody took His life from Him. He freely laid down His life. You might look and say, why did He let Judas betray Him when He knew He was going to betray Him? Why did He allow them to arrest Him when He saw them coming and and when, when they asked for Him, what did He say? He said, I am, and what happened? All the soldiers fell backwards. So we know that he was in control, he could have escaped, but he freely submitted himself to being arrested and taken to the cross. Why did he allow an illegal trial in the middle of the night? Why didn't he even try to defend himself? Why did he endure excruciating pain of being beaten and scourged? Why did a murderer go free and Jesus take his place? Why did he go to the cross, that place of shame and torment, when he didn't have to because he's God and he could have stopped it at any time? Why did he endure the mocking and the blasphemy and the cursing from the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers? They looked at Jesus and said, if you really are God, then come down from that cross. And I have to confess to you, that's why you're not God and I'm not God, because I'd have smoked those guys. How about you? You know what? You want to see some God? How about that? You're all stones, right? But you know, here's the reality. We see again that our God didn't do that. 
He's a God of love and grace and mercy. And he went to the cross and there, his eyes were set like flint toward the cross, it says in the Gospels. He had to go there. It was a divine appointment. The Bible says he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And we say, well, he endured all that, but why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did perfect, holy, innocent God have to endure so much? Again, the four Gospels tell us of His works and His words, His miracles, His perfect, sinless life. As we saw in Acts, we saw the Holy Spirit coming upon the church and what a mighty and powerful way God used them. But when we come to Romans, it's a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Rome. And it has more doctrine in it than any other book of the Bible. Now, doctrine is just a big word for, for truth. It's got more truth that we need to understand. And it's the truth of why Jesus died. We'll see the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sanctification, and the doctrine of service in the upcoming weeks as we go through Revelation. And in the first couple chapters, what we've been looking at is the doctrine of sin. Now, you may not have been to church in a while, and I'm glad, again, I'm glad you're here. Please feel welcome. I'm glad you showed up this morning. But I want to tell you something. If you haven't heard this in a while, I want to make it really, really clear. You're a sinner. Amen? Now, in the seeker-sensitive church model, you're not supposed to say that because people might not come back, okay? But here's the reality. If we don't teach the truth, if you don't understand you're a sinner, you'll never see a need for a Savior. If you don't understand that, that, you're, that you're desperate and that without Him, you're in trouble, you're not going to cry out to Him. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Romans chapter 2, because we're going to see again that doctrine of sin as we continue on. Now last week, for those of you who are here, that was a pretty heavy-duty chapter, wasn't it? And what we saw in that chapter was Paul's exhortation or Paul's direction to the Gentile world that had turned its back completely on God, had denied Him completely, was walking without Him in their lives. And if you remember, he talked about how that God is righteous and perfect and he revealed truth to them, but they rejected it. Now, every man, woman, and child on this planet, God has given them something to understand and know that there is a God. Inwardly, he convicts us, the Holy Spirit being with us. If you're new here, we talk about this a lot. The Holy Spirit is with, in, or upon. That's what the Bible says. He's with all of mankind. They call him their conscience. How does every person walking up and down the street know that For the most part, harming a small child is wrong. Most people would know that's wrong, right? Most people would stop somebody from doing that, even a person that denies there's a God. How do they know that's wrong? They know it's wrong because the Holy Spirit is with them. But as Christians, the Holy Spirit goes from being with us to being in us. Amen? And we're new creations in Christ, and old things have passed away, and all things become new. And then the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit even being upon you, which is what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Now, He not only gives them the Holy Spirit conscience convicting them of sin but it says in the chapter last in the chapter last week that creation is evidence of his glory amen you look around at the scar the stars in the sky and the infinite galaxy around us and you cannot deny there's a god you look at the the awesomeness of the universe and then you look at the the intricacy of the atom and it's our god that holds all of it in his hands The Bible says the rocks will cry out His name, and they truly do. And all of mankind will be held guilty before God because of that inward conscience and the outward creation that so evidently makes it clear that God is real. So all of mankind knows deep down inside there is a God. They may reject Him, as most do. They may deny that He even exists. But the reality is that God has created them with a God-shaped vacuum, a God-shaped void that can only be filled by Him. 
And they try to fill it with all the things the world has to offer. And as we saw last week, when people turn their back on God and they sear over their conscience, the first thing they do is they begin to reject the truth of creation. And we see that in our world today. We're following what is absolutely and positively a lie. Let me just tell you real clear. Evolution is impossible. It didn't happen. It can happen. It doesn't jive with the Bible. It's noise. We talked about the law of biogenesis last week, that nothing can come from, from, from mass, dead mass to, to life. Impossible. We talked about the second law of thermodynamics. Get the tape. But here's the reality. Evolution is impossible, but people follow it and believe it. Why? Because they don't want to have to believe in God. They don't want to have to put God on the throne. They want to be on their own throne, so they'd rather believe something that's impossible than trust the true and living God. We also saw that when... when People rebel against God that it's a slippery slope because then they, they're unthankful in their hearts. Before you know it, they're caught up in their own intellect. They think they're so wise, professing to be wise, they become as fools. Then we see that they begin to serve false gods. They elevate creature above creator. We live in Santa Cruz. People elevating creature above creator. Amen? Be a hero, save a whale, save a baby, go to jail. Ever heard that before? It's so true. We're more concerned about whales and trees than we are babies. Something's wrong. We've missed God completely. There needs to be revival in Santa Cruz County to turn things right side up again. Amen? And you know what? God's called us to be salt and light of this place. Santa Cruz, Holy Cross. My prayer is that it'll mean that again someday. And you know what? We need to be salt and lighter. But we see that again, as men turn their back on God, they deny the, the truth of creation. They're puffed up in their own intellect. They begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. And then we saw that sexual immorality runs rampant. Specifically homosexuality, which we know here in Santa Cruz is big time. And again, God loves the sin, loves the sinner, hates the sin, amen? And we're to love them, but we're not to condone sin. And man, Pastor Dave, you know, you need to you know, slow down, man, because people don't like that in Santa Cruz. If you say that, that homosexuality is sin, guess what? It's sin. Amen? But he loves them. And we need to reach out to them. And we need to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. And God can deliver them from that, just like he can deliver the adulterer and the drunkard and the fornicator and the drug addict and everybody else. Amen? So that's what Romans chapter 1 was all about, was how the Gentile world had turned itself over to paganism, had fallen so far away from God, had seared over its conscience, and we saw that sin was rampant. Now we get to chapter 2, and he turns from the Gentile pagan idol worshipers, and now he's going to talk to the religious people. The guys who think they've got it all figured out. You know, we go to temple, and we wear the black robes, you know, and, and we think we're really religious, and Paul's going to address them too. Because here's the reality, you guys. You can't be religious enough to get into the kingdom of God because it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Amen? Religion, the original word for it is relingara, which means to relink. And I agree with that. Relinking sinful man back to holy God. But the problem is that in Paul's day, just like today, people thought religion was a substitute for a relationship. And we're going to see this morning that it's not. And so as we go through Romans chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see why again that Jesus had to die. And we're going to see that it's very clear that it wasn't just the pagans, it wasn't just those who denied there was a God, but it was also those who considered themselves to be religious that also needed to have a head-on collision with Jesus Christ. Because without Him, we're hopeless. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. Without His shed blood on the cross, we're headed to hell. It says, and I wrote down here, it's no different for most people, or not difficult, for you to recognize that murder is wrong. 
It's not difficult for people to look at rape and, and things like that and go, oh man, that's wicked and that's perverse. But what about the person who considers himself to be religious, who's a good citizen, who pays his taxes, who loves his wife and kids, who works hard, who coaches Little League, who volunteers at his kid's school, who gives to charity and goes to church on occasion? Certainly he's better than a murderer. Certainly he's better than a rapist or, or, or an atheist. After all, he's a good man. He never killed anybody. Certainly God's going to take that into account on Judgment Day. His good works will certainly count for something, won't they? Well, let's take a look at Romans chapter 2, and let's find out if that's true. Because what we're going to see is we're going to first see that all men are guilty. Second, we're going to see that a godly heritage can't save you. And then thirdly, we're going to see that outward rituals won't save you either. So let's begin at verse 1 of Romans chapter 2. Why did Jesus have to die? And first, we're going to see that all men and women are guilty, first, in the light of truth. Now he turns and he's speaking to the Jews. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, where whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now one thing about hypocrisy and religious, you know, super religious people of the day is they've got this idea that they're better than other people. The Pharisees of Paul's day, of which Paul used to be one, you know, you look at them and they think of themselves as pious and holy and righteous, and they look at others as sinful and wicked. And so when they look at others, they look with a judgmental heart, and the word there for judge in the original language means to sneer, or to cast dispersion, or to look down on somebody. Now, we can say that sin is sin, that's not judging. What's judging is, is to look down on somebody, think you're better than them. Let me make it real clear to you. If you're born again this morning, it's by God's grace, not your greatness, amen? And we are just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, amen? And so we don't walk around being self-righteous and saying, oh, well, I'm so much better than you. Here's the reality that there before the grace of God go I, no matter who I'm looking at. And it's by God's grace that I am saved, not of works lest any man should boast. And I should never be self-righteous, and I should never look down, and I should look and see somebody, and my heart should break for them. Lord, oh, Lord, save them. Lord, how can I minister to them? And he looks at him and says, you guys are without excuse because you look at others and you point a finger at them and you think you're better than they are. You're self-righteous. If you're self-righteous, you are a hypocrite. Because a hypocrite is a mask wearer. Somebody pretending to be something that they're not. Pretending they're not sinners when they really are. Because we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And so Paul directs them and says, you're inexcusable. You're without excuse. You're guilty. You're just as guilty as those pagans are. The, the last chapter, that long list of sexual immorality, you're just as guilty as they are. They might say, but I don't do those things. I don't do those things. I, I live in the temple. I, I, you know, I, I'm perfect. No, you're not. You know what the Bible says? We might look at a murderer and say, well, I'm not a murderer, but the Bible says, Jesus said, if you look at another person with hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. How many murderers have we got in the room this morning? Amen? Okay. Well, you might say, well, I, I've, I've never committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife since the day we were married. I've been faithful to my husband since the day we were married. The Bible says if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. How many adulterers do we have in the room? If your hand's not up, you're lying now, too. I mean, liars we got in the room, right? 
So here's the reality. When we look down on somebody, we're saying that somehow we're more righteous than them. And the reality is that our hearts should break for them because Jesus died for them. And he loves them. He would have died for just that person. Think about that person that gets on your nerves the most at work or in your neighborhood or at school. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Right? Jesus died for them. And he loves them. And we would have died just for that person. Start praying for him. And don't be self-righteous as these guys were because when you are, you're without excuse because you're just as much a sinner as they are. You're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to the voting of men. Is that what it says? The judgment of God is according to what's popular with culture today. Is that what it says? It says the judgment of God is according to what? Truth. Who's the truth? Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, sometimes we might look and compare ourselves and hope that God grades on a curve. I'm kind of hoping God grades on a curve. Because, you know, I'm no Charles Manson, I'm no Osama bin Laden, and I'm not, you know, Saddam Hussein. So if God grades on a curve, I'm above those guys for sure. And sometimes that's what we think. We think God grades on a curve and somehow, oh, I'm better than those people, so I'm at least in maybe the top half when you compare me to the rest of the world, on a good day anyway. But God doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't compare you to Saddam Hussein. You know who we're compared to? Jesus Christ. How you doing now? Not so good. He doesn't judge on the curve. He judges on the cross. Amen? It's Jesus Christ that's the standard. When, in comparison to Him, we've all fallen short. It's according to truth. You know, we live in a world today where everything's moral relativism. Oh, well, we all vote, well, you know, it's a different time now. And, you know, hey, you know, having eight wives is okay. And, you know, doing it, you know. And we think it's okay to live however we want to live because we voted on it. And that's what culture does. You know, culture doesn't define truth. God's Word does. That's why, guys, can I encourage you? Crack this thing open every single day. The Bible says we're to desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. I know you don't pass by that fridge without opening it up. So you ought to be opening this up when you pass by it. Amen? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And this is what will transform your life. And this is what will keep your eyes on truth. We fall into the trap of going with the flow of the world because we get our eyes off of God's Word. And He says there very clearly, Know that judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. When we're put in the light of Christ, we're all guilty. And by the way, there's not going to be any expert witnesses on judgment day. You know, no psychiatrist showing up saying, well, you've got a, he's got a disorder. Right? Doesn't that fry you? When, everybody's got a something. I had too many Twinkies that morning, that's why I killed 47 people. Right? There's always a reason for our sin. Let me just tell you right now, when you stand before God, you're going to know you're a sinner, and no one's going to have to tell you. You're going to be on your face, so am I. Oh, by God's grace that I'm even in your presence. Amen? And so we see here that he says that judgment comes according to truth. God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. We all fall short. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, that doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you know that God's judgment is inescapable? You cannot escape it. You can hide from men, but you can't hide from God. 
God knows where you are. God knows your heart. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know what? There's, there's several things that we see in the Bible that, that bring our Savior a broken heart. But you know what? There's very few things that make Him angry. But you know one thing that really made our Savior angry? Hypocrisy. What did He do to the tables in the temple, those guys who turned His Father's house into a den of thieves? What did He do? You know, first of all, when you see these pictures of Jesus, like he's some wimpy little... Jesus was not a wimp. He was a stonemason, okay? How many stonemasons you know are wimps, right? Okay? He went in there and he was flipping tables over. Why? Because they had turned his father's house into a den of thieves. He hates hypocrisy. He hates it. And may we hate it. May we be honest. May we be open before God and say, you know, man, I'm, I blow it. Lord, I'm desperate for you. I mean to remain desperate for you. We may fool men, but we'll never fool God. Verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What does it mean to despise the riches of His goodness? It means to, to neglect or to think against or to take for granted God's grace. May we never take God's grace for granted. May we never look at His, at his long-suffering as permission to continue in sin. By the way, if you're, if you're right now caught up in sin that you know is wrong and you're habitually doing it, I want you to know that because you think you're getting away with it, doesn't mean that God doesn't know and God doesn't care. God's long-suffering should never be exchanged for God's permission. You know, years ago, I was sitting in this very room back in the 70s, and I was blowing it, and I would come to church, and I would just be so gripped because I would live one way during the week, and I would come to church on Sunday... And I would just be, man, my heart would break every time because I knew this has got to change in my life. Now, I love the Lord. And I shared my faith at school. But you know what? God was not the priority of my life. Football was. That was my priority. That was the most important thing in the world to me. And you know, it's very easy to put your career or a relationship or something else there. And don't ever think that God's patience is God's permission for you to continue on in a lifestyle where you're not walking with Him. Now the Jews, because they were God's chosen people and had a religious heritage, would often take for granted God's grace. Many today, again, do the same thing. The first thing that has to happen, you guys, is we must see we're sinners until we'll, before we'll see our need for a Savior. And if we take God's grace for granted, we've missed Him completely. May we not mistake God's patience and long-suffering toward our sin as God's indifference. Verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness, and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The day of judgment will come, and in the light of the truth, all of our secrets will be revealed. God's judgment is righteous. Now let me just say this. Some people really struggle with the concept of hell. How many of you struggle with the concept of hell? Be honest. Okay? You might say, man, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Why would a loving God send anybody to hell? Let me make it real clear for you. God sends no one to hell. Men choose to go there. God's desire is that none should perish, no, not one. His desire is that all would come to a saving knowledge of Him. But He's a loving and a gracious God who will force Himself on no one. And the reality is that as we reject Him over and over and over and harden our hearts and sear over our conscience and say no to the gift of the cross, over and over and over, eventually... God will give us up to our reprobate mind, the Bible says. He'll allow us to have our will and our desire. 
And what are we storing up for ourselves? What does this verse say? This is not Pastor Dave's opinion. This is the Bible. It says you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. Now, let me tell you this. I do not want to face God's wrath. How about you? No thanks. I don't want to sign up for that program at all. Uh, Now, it says you store it up when you walk in rebellion, when you deny God, when you say you have no need for Him. Because, you know what, if, a, if God is holy, and He is, a holy God must judge evil, or He's not holy. If a holy God doesn't judge evil, He's not holy. If God didn't judge evil, then the cross was in vain. But we are sinners, and we've chosen to sin. And sin requires redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Now, we're all guilty in the light of the truth, but we're also guilty in the light of our actions. Look at verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds... Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. So, we are going to be rendered according to our deeds. Verse 7, Eternal life to those who patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. If you love me, you'll obey me. Jesus said that. It is not good works that change the heart of men. It's a changed heart that produces good works. You know what, I, can I tell you that I am so blessed by what I'm seeing happening in some of your lives? You know, today we baptized, I think it was 15 or 16 people. As a pastor, one of my favorite things in the world is a baptism. You know why? It's fruit of God doing great things in the lives of people. Several of the people we baptized today, one year ago today, didn't even know the Lord. What an awesome thing that last Easter some of the people that, got, that were baptized today did not even know Christ, and they've been born again during this past year, and today they want to make a public confession of their faith. What an awesome thing. And it blesses the heart of God, and it blesses me as your pastor. I love it. And what we see here is that, that God desires that we walk in obedience, and as we fall in love with Him, good works are produced out of our life. We don't do good works so that God will love us, but when we fall in love with God, good works are going to come out of us. Amen? And what it's saying here is that those who the good works are coming from, it's a, it's a sign of a changed life, a transformed life. Holy Spirit's gotten a hold of you. You're a new creation in Him. Some of you guys I know that have gotten saved in the last year, your family and friends are blown away. Dude, what happened to you? Jesus. Amen? And your testimony is the greatest thing you can share. But look at this. It says, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. In the heart of man dwelleth no good thing. What does our flesh do? Our flesh promotes self. Our flesh rebels against God. Our flesh disobeys God's word. Our flesh wants to be on the throne. What does our spirit do? It denies self. It submits to God. It obeys His word. It gives up the throne. I used to tell kids in the youth group, most of you know I was a youth pastor for about 15 years, and as a youth pastor, I used to tell the kids that you've got a fleshly tiger and a spiritual tiger battling for control of your life every single day. And which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most. If all you do is feed your flesh, when temptation comes, you're done. But if you're feeding the Spirit, if you're spending time in prayer, you're seeking God's face, you're spending time in the Word, you're surrounding yourself in Christian fellowship, you're putting Christian music on in your car as you're driving down the road, you're feeling, you're feeling the Spirit, you're feeding the Spirit. When temptation comes and the flesh comes, you're able, to, you're able to walk away from it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit 
is stronger than our flesh if we allow him to be in charge. But look what happens. It says tribulation and anguish. You know, again, God is long-suffering, but his judgment will come. Sin does have consequences. Hell is a real place. It's a real place. The Bible describes it as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's eternal torment, eternal separation, eternal memory of rejecting Christ and His love. All men who face God's righteous judgment without Christ will suffer for all eternity separated from God. Luke 16, there's a story of Lazarus and the rich man. Most, many of you know that story. And the, Lazarus was a beggar and the rich man had everything in this world. Then they died and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. And the, uh, the place where heaven was until Jesus died on the cross, they could enter into his presence. And the rich man was in torment, and he looked across the great gulf, and he saw the rich, uh, Lazarus, and he said, could he just dip his finger in some water and put a little bit on my tongue to bring me relief because I'm in great torment here. And he said, no, he can't come between you because sin is the gulf between God's presence and separation from him. And that can never be crossed. It can ne- at once we die, that's it. Pointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. Pastor, it's a heavy word this morning. God's word and God's truth is heavy, but I'd rather have you hear it than have you experience it. Amen? We need to, you know, literally have the, don't take this wrong, have the hell scared out of us. Amen? I don't want to go there. Amen? We were down by that fire this morning. That thing was hot. That was one of the hottest fire. I stood by that thing and singed my, the hair on my arm. I was like, man, I'm glad I'm not going to hell. Praise the Lord. But here's the reality that hell is a real place. And every Christian this side of heaven should be concerned with every unbeliever this side of hell. Should be our passion, our focus, our desire. It's to say, man, the Lord loves you. You don't have to go there. But all who go will go out of their own free will. It's interesting that that rich man, you know what he said? Go back and tell my family. Go back and tell them. Because I don't want them to come here. And he remembered his time on earth. And I believe that's one of the greatest torments in hell is not only is there weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the thought about every opportunity they had to know Christ and rejected Him. How heavy that would be for all eternity. Verse 10. It says there, But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also the Greek. In Christ, glory, honor, and peace. Eternal joy, blessings, it's an awesome thing. Because of repentance in Christ, because our relationship with Him, not because of our heritage or religious affiliation, we have joy. Apart from Him, torment. With Him, peace. Why would anybody reject God but people do all day? I don't understand, but then again I do because our flesh is perverse and wicked above all things. Why did Jesus have to die? Because all men and women are guilty. All of us. That's why He had to die. In light of the truth, in light of their actions, we're all guilty. Now look at this. God is impartial in His judgment. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Aren't you glad that our God is not partial? Our God loves everybody the same. He doesn't care what your background is. He doesn't care what color your skin is. He doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care about any of that. He loves you. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on what? Your heart. And He loves you. And He shows no partiality. And sadly, there are those walking around today that somehow think that God loves them more than other people. That blasphemes our God because that's not what He said. For God so loved the few... 
the world, all of us. His desire that none should perish. There's no partiality with God. Jews expected special treatment because they were chosen of God. He loves them, but he loves the Gentiles just as much. And it says there, those who have the law will be judged by the law. You know, the Jews were going to have a greater judgment because they had the law to study. We have the book. You know, no one in the United States can say that they have had no access to this. Isn't that true? Churches on every corner, you know, all over the place. There's Bibles everywhere. Most people have three, four, five, six, eight Bibles in their house. We have them, we just don't read them. Right? And we, when we stand before God, because we've had this, we will be accountable to this. Then it says there in verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You know what? God wants us to more than have the law in our house, more than to know what the Bible says, but God has called us to live it. Remember that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's bad. What does that mean? God didn't forbid things because He's a no-fun bummer God and doesn't want you to have any fun. He forbid it because it will harm you, because He loves you, because He knows what's best for you. And so when we obey Him, we're basically we're saying, Lord, I trust that You know what's best for my life. When we reject it and we do our own thing, we're saying, God, I know better than You. I'm smarter than You. I have more intellect than You. I used to say to the youth group kids, hey, I'm 15, I got it all figured out, right? And sometimes that's how we feel. We think, and when we choose to sin, we're saying, God, I know better than you for my life. When we walk in obedience and say, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I believe in you. Remember that the law does not save us, but it reveals our need for a Savior. Coming to church is a good thing, but it won't save you. Owning a Bible, great thing, but it won't save you. A godly family, a great thing, it won't save you. Having knowledge of the Word, wonderful, but it won't save you. God has not called us to know about a man, but to have an intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe. Amen? Not just know about Jesus, not just know about what it means to be a Christian, but truly to have intimate fellowship with Him. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ your best friend? Is He your best friend? If He's not, He needs to be. Amen? No other gods before me. Not just a faraway, distant God you know about, but an intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe. That's the God that we serve. Verse 14. For when Gentiles do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these also, not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or excusing them. This is saying that all men are accountable. That even if they don't have the entire Bible in their hands, they still have the conscience that we talked about earlier that convicts them of sin. They still have creation around them that testifies of God's existence. And it says there, it bears witness with them. So when men sin, they know it. God will judge all men equally. He will judge all men with with impartiality. All men deep down know that they are sinners. Verse 16, in that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the popular words of men. What does it say there? According to the gospel. Again, the gospel is the standard, not what men think. According to the gospel that Paul preached, the good news of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. Why did Jesus have to die? Because all men are guilty. We're guilty by our actions. We're guilty 
in, uh, in comparison to the truth. We're guilty in the secrets of our hearts. We're all sinners. Now, that's kind of a bummer because God can have no sin in heaven, right? If God had one sin in heaven, what would He have? Earth part two, right? One sin, this place was a train wreck. If God allowed one sin in heaven, you'd have earth all over again. Well, wait a minute, we all raised our hands and said we're sinners, so we've got a problem. A big problem. That's why Jesus had to die. Because of our sin. Because we so desperately needed someone to pay for it, and we could not. Only a perfect, holy, sinless sacrifice could restore sinful man back to holy God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. Nothing else. Verse 17. Now, I want 18. I want to see this too here, clearly. Verse 17. It's really important that you understand that not only are we guilty of sin and in desperate need of a Savior, but there are several things that cannot save us. Only Christ can. Some of the things that people trust in cannot save them. We're going to see two here real quickly. Look at verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. Now what he says here is you rely on the law, and you boast in God as if He belongs to you. Well, He's our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's our God. He belongs to us, and we boast in God, and He belongs to us. He's our God. And so they're trusting in their heritage, their godly, quote, godly heritage, to mean that they have a special in with God. Verse 18. And know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. So you make your boast in God, you know what the will of God is, you approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. You know His will through the Word, you have knowledge of the things that are more excellent, you've been instructed by the law, verse 19. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. So not only do they boast in God and have a religious heritage, but they actually think that they are the ones that are leading the blind into truth. That poor blind man needs me to come and share with him and boast in the Lord because I have a special in with God that he doesn't have. And they're doing this not because they've been born again, but because of their religious heritage, because of their, the, the last name that they carry around, because of the place where their ancestors came from. Verse 20, An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. So you think you've got a corner on the truth because of your background, because of your heritage, because of your family lines. But look what it says here. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. You've got knowledge in your head, but you've no, got no change in your heart. You've got a religious background that you trust in, but it won't save you. It's been said that many will miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance from their head to their heart. Have a knowledge of God, but no transformed life. These guys boasted in God and boasted in being religious and having a background that, that spoke of them being special in some way. But here's the reality. What they simply had was pride. Pride of race, pride of religion, pride of their knowledge, but no transformation. Do as I say, not as I do. Here's what I tell you to do. And I've got this religious heritage, so I don't have to live up to it. Can I, can I encourage you with something? Here's the reality, you guys. 
You're not going to get to heaven because your great-grandpa was a missionary. Amen? Because your uncle was, you know, a, a pastor or, you know, and sometimes we think we got this religious heritage. And you know what? Even in our country, we, we consider ourselves a Christian nation, which I find hysterical these days, but we consider ourselves a Christian nation, so we must be Christians. God shed His grace on thee, right? So we're a Christian nation, and we got some special in with God. You know what? God loves the Russians and the Iraqis as much as He loves the Americans. Did you know that? It's a fact. He loves them all. He died for them, didn't He? Amen? And too often we think we've got this heritage that somehow gives us a special in with God. No, we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And your heritage won't get you into heaven. It won't. I don't care how many priests in your background. I don't care how many you know, religious people. I don't care what kind of sacrifices were made by your ancestors. It's not based on what's behind you, but it's based on where you are standing with the Creator of the universe. For the name of God is blasphemed. Man, this is sad. Because they called themselves followers of God and their actions were so horrible, it caused everyone else to blaspheme God when they saw the way they lived. And you know, that breaks my heart to think that we as Christians might live in such a way that people would blaspheme our Savior because they see the way we live. We call ourselves Christians on Sunday, and we go out the rest of the week and act like the world, slamming people, talking bad about people, you know, cheating our employer out of time, not doing our job as unto the Lord, you know, not paying our taxes, you know, being angry and bitter, mistreating our families and then calling ourselves Christians. Coming to church on Sunday and whoosh, put on the Christian face, right? Praise the Lord, brother. God bless you, right? And then go home and ah, 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 go to work, ah, ah, right? Are you a Christian? I told you about that one poor guy who worked with me, who told people he was a Christian, and literally people were laying on the ground holding their stomach laughing. You? Ah! And they're all falling on the ground. That's not a good testimony. If people find out you're saved, well, first of all, if they have people at work don't know you're saved, that's not a good testimony, amen? If they're in shock when they find it out, that's really bad. And here's the reality, that people blaspheme because people become religious and don't have a relationship. And, and they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Lastly, our outward rituals can't save us either. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now circumcision was a mark on the body that showed a commitment to God. It was a reminder for the rest of the life of that young man of his commitment to God. And what I compare it to most today is baptism. It's an outward commitment to God that you, and, and it's something you make profess it, right? Now, if you go down and get baptized, but you don't walk with God, what does it mean? Nothing. I've had people doing baptisms on the beach. I've had guys come up to me just stoned out of their mind. I mean, hey, you, can you baptize me? I'm like, well, let, you know what? Let's go get about 18 cups of coffee, sit down and have about a four-hour talk about Jesus, and maybe we can come back down here tomorrow. But the thing is, they think, if I just get in that water, then somehow, no, 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 no. It's not just about keeping the ritual. Again, baptism, we should do it. It's an outward statement of an inward change. It's an awesome thing. It's a blessing. But if we think that that will save us, we've missed it. It's not the rules. It's not the rituals. It's all about having a relationship with God. Verse 26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, 
Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Saying, hey, if you've got someone who walks with God, is in love with God, but doesn't have all these rituals behind him, that person is much more of a sincere believer than one who's kept all these rituals and rules but truly doesn't have a relationship with God. Verse 27. And will not the physical uncircumcision, if it fulfills the law, judge you who even in your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Often people do outward rituals to please men. It doesn't matter if you've had your first confession and you've had your catechism, and you've had your baptism, and you've got church membership, and you've kept all the religious rules in the world, if you do not have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not born again, and you are not going to heaven. Pastor Dave, man, you know, you're blowing my gear. Hey, becoming a Christian is not joining the Elks Club. Amen? It's not paying dues and, you know, hey, I get my horns, I'm all set, right? Walk down an aisle, pray. Now, again, should we be baptized? Yes. Should we take communion? Absolutely. Should we, you know, be involved in a local church? Without a doubt. But will those things save us? No. Why did Jesus have to die? Because we're all guilty. All of us. Everybody in this room. We're guilty in the light of the truth, God's Word, and in comparison to Christ. In light of our actions, in our secret thought life, all men are sinners separated from God. Your heritage won't save you. Growing up in a Christian home or nation, living in a godly family, having Christian relatives, keeping outward rituals cannot save you. Communion won't save you. Baptism won't save you. Confirmation won't save you. Church membership won't save you. There must be a transformed life. There must be. Coming to church on Easter and Christmas won't save you. A few of you went, ouch. I'm glad you're here. God bless you guys, all right? But God has you here for a reason this morning. And I want to close with this. Those of you who've been coming to our church for a while, you've heard this before. We must have a transformed life. We must be new creations in Christ, and that can only happen through repentance and Jesus Christ's redemption on the cross. There's no other way into heaven but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and only through repentance. Now, I've used this analogy several times. You've been coming for a while, so bear with me. When I was engaged to my wife, I grew up here in Santa Cruz. I went to Harbor High across the street. I met my wife here in town at 7-Eleven, believe it or not. Oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven. I met my wife there. And I took her to the Shadowbrook restaurant here in town. And unbeknownst to her, I got down on my knee and I pulled a ring out of my pocket and I asked her to marry me and she said yes. And that was a very good thing, praise the Lord. She said yes. It'll be 20 years in January that we've been married. Now, she said yes to my proposal. And then after saying yes to my proposal, we got married. And on our wedding day, you know, she marched down the aisle. And when she marched down the aisle, we both said, I do. She then took my name. She went from being Lynette Weir to Lynette Johnston. I think that's an upgrade, okay? She went from Lynette Weir to Lynette Johnston, okay? Her name was changed. And you know what's awesome? Is that ring that's on her finger, even to this day, 
is a constant reminder to her, to me, and to everybody around her that she and I are committed to each other, that she is mine and I am hers, that she's my wife, I love her, and we belong together for eternity, and it lets everybody know that she's mine. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because Jesus Christ proposed to every single one of us. He didn't do it on his knee at the Shadowbrook restaurant. He did it hanging on a cross at Calvary. And he said, I love you, and I want you to become part of my bride. What does the Bible say the church is? The what? The bride of Christ. He says, I want you to be my bride. And he proposed to every single one of us. And we say yes to his proposal. He doesn't give us a ring. He gives us something much greater. What does He give us? Salvation, and He gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and what does that tell us? It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week reminder, just like my ring on my hand. It's a reminder that we belong to the Lord, that we are a part of His bride, that we're His. And the Holy Spirit flowing out of us lets everybody know that we belong to Him. Now, I want to say this, that when Jesus died on the cross, He made that that universal option for us to know him that universal proposal but it can only be accepted individually but when we say yes to it his holy spirit comes to live inside of us just like the ring on my wife's finger but guess what that is the time then and only then that we're allowed to take his name just like my wife took my name after marching down the aisle and taking the ring when we say yes to his proposal his holy spirit comes to live inside of us then we take his name and that name is christian When you say yes to the work of the cross, when you say, yes, I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, when you ask Him to forgive you of your sin, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and you take His name. You going to church does not make you a Christian. You reading your Bible does not make you a Christian. You doing good works does not make you a Christian. You living better than many other people in the world does not make you a Christian. There's only one way you can say yes to You must say yes to the cross of Christ, the cross of Calvary, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Only that can wash away your sin, nothing else. So, this morning, that proposal is being held out to every one of you. Jesus says, I love you, and I want you to be a part of my bride, and I'm offering you salvation. All you have to do, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. You may have come here this morning with no idea, and God, by divine appointment, has you here and wants you to walk out of here being a part of His bride, filled with this Holy Spirit, and for the first time in your life, being able to actually say, yes, I'm a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for those who are here this morning who do not know You. Lord, I pray that You would open their eyes and soften their hearts, Lord, to their need for You. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw them into a relationship. Lord, I pray that as you hold out your hand and propose it to them and say, be a part of my bride. I love you. I died for you. I'm willing to take all of your sin upon myself. I pray, Lord, that there would be those this morning that would respond to that proposal and say, yes, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Yes, Lord, I want you to forgive me for my sin. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is God. I believe He died on the cross. And I believe that what we're celebrating today is true, that He rose from the dead. With every head bowed, those of you who are Christians, pray for those here who might not be. If you're here this morning and you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven, that your sin's been paid for, we're all guilty. 
Someone's going to pay for our sin. The Lord's willing to do it. All I'm going to ask you to do is something real simple. It's just, the Bible says, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. You deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. All I'm going to ask you to do, as every believer here will rejoice with you, is just raise your hand and say, I want to know for sure that when I walk out of this place, my sins are forgiven. Is there anybody here at all? Don't leave here without him. He loves you. Anybody here at all? God bless you. Anybody else? The Lord, God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? The Lord loves you guys. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? The Lord loves you guys. He suffered and died that you might have eternal life. You're not here by chance this morning. Is there anybody else before we pray? God bless you, bro. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Let's all pray together with these many that have raised their hands, every one of us, out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sin, to make me a new creation, to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for my sin, that he rose from the dead and that he's coming back. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for filling me with your spirit. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. You want to know what's awesome? The Bible says that when one person comes to know Jesus Christ, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. That means there's a party up in heaven right now. Amen? That's awesome. And I want to say this. If you raise your hand today, we have, we'd love to give you something before you leave. We're not going to have you join a country. You know, We're not signing you up for anything. We just want to make sure that we can pray with you and give you something before you leave, okay? So before you head out, if you could just come up here and talk to one of the pastors, that would be really great. Well, let's stand together and let's worship. Is our God worthy to be worshipped? Amen? Let's worship Him.